You're listening to the Physics Ed Podcast. For hundreds of ideas, free experiments and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. And now, here's your host, Ben Newsom. Yes, welcome again from the Physics Ed Podcast. Hey, I'm so glad to have you again for another chat around science and STEM and all that sort of thing. And this week's a bit of an interesting chat. We're hanging out with Alison Mitchell, who's the Outreach Programs Manager for the Penn Museum, which if you haven't come across the Penn Museum, it seriously is a cool site. Think archaeology and anthropology from across the planet. That's pretty much what it is. Name your country, they've got possibly a collection about that, and they link the sciences in amongst us. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Alison is a big proponent, a massive advocate for linking science and culture together. And that's exactly what we're doing. The thing is, she does this via virtual learning and has done this for many years. And she has some real insights around how to engage learners from no matter where they are in archaeological science. So let's dive right in. Let's dig right in. Why not? Let's put that pun in there too, because it really is worth our time. And uh, Alison has a lot to share. So let's get right into it. This is the Physics Ed Podcast. We're all about science, ed tech and more. To see 100 fun free experiments you can do with your class, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. And click 100 free experiments. Okay, so I, I work at the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, which is a huge, 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 huge museum name. So we actually go by the Penn Museum for short. And um, if you didn't catch it, we study archaeology and anthropology. <laughs> That's why it's that big title. I'm the outreach programs manager there. So I hold this really, really cool position where I have the opportunity to create um, ways of interacting with our collections and our research through three different um, real lenses. One being we're right out in the community or um, we were right out in the community doing tabling experiences in science festivals. So I'm excited to talk about that in art festivals. Then we also are able to create these kits that had touchable objects that was really developed over this long period of time at the Penn Museum in this teachable collection where children could touch and interact with these objects and the same as the public that would come in um, uh, and they would have these uh, programs that I built around archaeology, helping kids put uh, critical thinking uh, they practice in school into some fun engagement with museums. And then I also do a whole bunch of virtual learning, which was always kind of my niche. And that's how we connected way, way back um, when at a, at a, I think a, an ISTE conference uh, when it was in Philadelphia one time. So really exciting. So I wear a couple hats, I think just like everybody, as you said. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like um, we're like a hydra with lots of heads. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, absolutely, with lots of hats to wear. Look, you've got a lot going on. And one of the things, I mean, apart from you just you know, doing awesome stuff in the virtual world, which obviously we can definitely talk about. I mean, yeah. archaeology itself is something I've really wanted to talk about uh, for a while now because, I mean, it, I love weaving that history, art, culture into a science context because honestly, it all comes together all in one go here. And this is very much uh, something that you were right into. Yeah, absolutely. So I really feel so lucky to be able to, to work in the context of the Penn Museum because you not only have the opportunity to have this vast collection that's global, you know, that, uh, that the objects are things that 
individuals owned, used, or created, some that were living 10,000, 5,000, just a thousand years ago. You're able to connect uh, really beautifully within the exhibits and within everything that's digitized as well. But you have this amazing um, multiple layers with the Penn Museum and with this uh, view into archaeology, especially when you look at like the programming and how we're trying, how you, we really work to make the programs interactive and give you access to experts. And when I say experts, I mean content knowledge experts. So people, like you said, that are coming from different fields and different perspectives, but are all looking to understand humans and doing that by looking at the material culture, those objects that are left behind and having those discussions and also being able to uh, work to understand the world cultures available today, right? That you can compare these objects to. Um, and especially with so many different minds at the table, you know, you get introduced to these different um, perspectives or these different objects or these different stories that maybe you would never have the opportunity, um, you know, to have learned before without those uh, many minds on the table, like you said. And on top of it, it's just really interesting. You know, it, it helps remind you that, you know, the world, is, history is living, that you're constantly be, you constantly have the opportunity to learn more about the people that came before. So, um, and, and how in all reality, we're not that different from people um, from ancient times. I mean, we have uh, obviously new technologies, but we still have a similar and, you know, necessary needs and desires. So it's really a cool subject to jump into. And also from in my, in my expertise is being an educator. So being able to help interpret that, um, especially working with these content knowledge experts, like graduate students who are a great resource and these amazing curators um, that have this another amazing role to be a faculty member of the University of Pennsylvania and have these lived experiences and connections they bring in from all over the world. Um, so it's really, really a, a, a fun perspective. So I'm excited to talk about it. Well, sorry, <laughs> considering like, I mean, um, if you've never been to the Penn Museum, guys, seriously, if you ever get a chance, go around because you are going to spend a lot of time there. <laughs> it's a, lot, yes. you know, a lot of artifacts. <laughs> and this is the thing, like, I mean, uh, often, I mean, people, no, I know the misconception can be with students that oh, it's just a dusty old relic sitting in a corner somewhere or <laughs> something like that. I mean, there really is a scientific method involved. We try to work out, oh, yes. not, not just from a conservation point of view, like where did this thing come from, et cetera. I mean, so how do you go about teaching kids, honestly, how science weaves into this? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, one thing I do always like to say is conservation is one of my favorite parts of museum work. And we have a really, really interesting view in. And uh, we can talk about that as well, because I think that you'll like some of the cool things uh, that we can check out um, in the Artifact Lab. And we have this amazing team of conservators who, again, you know, so many different minds and disciplines coming to the table. Um, the science that I also like to dive into is the idea of this social science. And when you say scientific, method, at least how I interpret it and help um, individuals that are walking in and like you said, may have one idea about what this institution, what the objects might be, how we try to bring it to life is really having them use the most important tool. Um, and the, I, what I think is always the most important part of the scientific method, which is the tool being your eyes and that helping you observe and look closely to really, really take time um, to ask yourself questions, some that might be answerable easily, like basic features, and in other cases, ask yourself questions um, that require you to 
you know, pull out background knowledge, be able to kind of start your research and form a research question to then, you know, experiment in different ways. So what experiment I guess I always love to talk about is one that was shared with me from an Egyptologist. And, um, you know, you're talking about ancient mummification. We have, you know, there's lots of different um, you know, topics to talk about and explore when that relates to history, when it relates to art, and obviously, you know, a great understanding of um, their daily practice was connected to their belief system, right? And in mummification, when you really break that apart, that's truly uh, a, a wildly scientific <laughs> experience done so early. And to understand how archaeologists do science experiments to you know, maybe recreate ancient materials like natural absorbents called natron or um, to understand the science behind, uh, you know, the practice that was really done for a belief system. It helps you remind, it helps remind you, you know, that science is uh, connected to really a movement and a connection to the culture. Um, so understanding science, language, art, um, you know, that it's a really fun way to help kids connect, you know, something they may have heard in their history class and their science class um, uh, together. And using archaeology as a practical use of science and the method is also really fun to talk about with kids and, and adults as well. But what Reminding everybody they have that skill. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that often comes up is, you know, it just you know, how old is the thing? And I mean, a dating te dating techniques are straight up science, <laughs> straight up. And, yes. and, uh, and, and, and often um, sometimes debatable, you know, is this within 50, 100,000 year correct or the rest? I mean, I imagine that comes up a bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think always, I think no matter what, when you're going to be working with objects and collections and all different types and shapes and living and, and history, and like you said, science, it's, it's all such, people come in with such different understandings. Um, but I would say, um, I'm sorry, Ben, say that one more time, because no, <laughs> I just right. got excited. It's in the early morning for me, then that's okay. No, it's just sort of things like, you know how you got carbon dating, you got argon dating, you got all the different Yes, I was going to say, I just, my mind got so excited because what I really enjoy is the specific science where carbon dating, yes, and these different, of course, the arguments, right? My, what I got lost in thought in is the question I guess I'm always asking myself um, is how do we know what we know and which ways are we going to answer that? So the carbon dating, that is a really interesting topic and I really like how carbon Carbon dating can also be balanced in uh, to dendrochronology. Dendrochronology is actually something that has a specific tie, this idea of tree ring dating, yeah. and not only tree ring dating, but an understanding of the environment. The idea that is, uh, if tree rings are closer together, it's going to be that there's not a lot of water that season and farther apart, vice versa. So the idea is that we actually have a person that helped found that that specific type of dating method. So I dove into that kind of story um, and the idea of ancient trees. And um, then my colleague, he was actually developing a program all about carbon dating. So we we're kind of talking about these two very interesting scientific methods and these conversations, these um, you know chances in the environment you're working with to uh, connect with experts that actually you know study this and have studied this and dedicated big parts of their life to these amazing science to understand dating better. And then all of a sudden, as we're kind of 
talking and bantering and kind of trading ideas to help our programs grow, we realized that carbon dating and dendrochronology are each other's balance, a way for people to kind of prove a point in some cases um, about a, a specific date. Um, I also like the idea of dating being something that um, in some cases you can look around um, society, you can look to different resources like artworks or statues, and you can at least get a guesstimate, a hypothesis kind of, <laughs> a good guess um, of when a person uh, could have been living based on like what they were wearing, how their hair might be, um, or maybe even a, mat uh, a material or an artistic method that was being used that might be an advancement from something that was seen before. So that's another fun way to at least like give yourself a starting ground, a foundation point. Well, well, I'm, I'm thinking about um, like, you know, the, definitely the tree rings. I mean, for sure. I mean, there's some ancient cherries around and also the ice cores themselves. I actually wonder, I mean, considering what's going on in 2020, there's going to be a record <laughs> this yeah. because of what's happened with the atmosphere, uh, for sure. And it's something that can totally be brought in. I suspect people working at the Penn Museum from 400 years from now will be able to find that record. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I will say that uh, we, you know, of course, in archaeology, records are one of the most important things. I always say another important tool is the pen and the paper, right? And, and everything that you can draw, write, anything you can do with it. But uh, dendrochronology is a really, really cool story. And at least the connection that um, I have with it is there is a gentleman who actually was kind of more toward a was moving more toward a retirement even into his retirement he was still a researcher and connecting with different forms of researching um, one specifically being the dendrochronology story and he had gone and collect uh, collected different um, parts of trees in um, in California uh, birchwood and uh, and it's just like so beautiful because I actually all of a sudden, uh, bristlecone pine, excuse me, uh, bristlecone pine grows uh, thick, uh, really, 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 really close together tree rings. So they grow wider as opposed to taller. So it was such an interesting story. And uh, the scientists who work in this really amazing um, set of labs that are, they're at the bottom of the Penn Museum, uh, it's called the... Uh, we call them the CAM labs. They actually have this one individual who's a researcher. She's so wonderful. And she showed me these amazing samples of uh, these bristlecone pines. And I now like point them out everywhere. And we've made this really cool thing. Uh, we took out actually into a community program, a really fun program, where we actually uh, took these different patterns that were based off of tree rings. And we had students slide across um, a little material, kind of um, like just a little sample of a straight up and down design. And they had to match it with a similar example on like a little mat on a table. And it was something that kind of helped them figure out a dating technique. So we've had them put it on a timeline. So they had to match the pattern on the two um, individual pieces of paper, or I guess they were kind of laminated, but it was really, really fun. The kids got into it. And we actually had another um, experience where it wasn't just this ancient tree. There was actually um, a connection to a, uh, excavation that's occurring in Gordian. It's actually still um, something that, you know, we have a heavy hand in, uh, a specific archaeologist. And it has a connection to King Midas and the family of that tale. Um, and actually a specific, um, a specific uh, to a, a mound 
where there was a specific tomb like structure. It's actually one of the oldest wooden structures. They had some type, we played around with this idea of how wood is used in that. And we had kids apply the same idea of this tree ring dating and pattern matching. And it was really cool to have them understand that it wasn't just, you could just like count the tree rings and that was it. And they knew how old the tree was. There actually had a lot more information in it. So it would be cool to, to think about a core sample uh, you know, of a 400-year-old tree 400 years from now and see how the patterns would change. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, I, I so interesting. Wonder, at all, like, with the students, do you mainly have middle school students come through? Is it high school? Is it younger ones? Well, who ten, tends to turn up? Yeah, so I would say at least for from, a mu from our museum perspective, it's a middle school population. We definitely serve high school audiences and younger audiences as well, but we see a big, big, big connection to middle school. That's mainly because the content of social studies kind of wraps in uh, social studies or history and world history. Um, it kind of all wraps in in a beautiful way with our global collection and especially with it being an ancient world, uh, ancient world context. And then outside of uh, that, we also, um, you know, are connected to the university. So we have a lot of colleges and different uh, university students, both uh, connected through Penn and obviously different, uh, you know, obviously, and then different uh, universities from around the area also come and visit, which is wonderful. So it's great to see a, a nice mix. One of those things that um, you do, I mean, you're not just getting people rocking up to you, you're going out to the world by virtual <laughs> conferencing as well as doing festivals. I mean, I might just look mm -hmm. down the virtual world for a start. I mean, I know you're, yeah. you're presenting right now, uh, not right now in the museum because <laughs> you're kind of locked out. No, uh, unfortunately, but, I miss it so much. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's strange. You kind of like, it's like your little home. I feel the same. I often interchange my work with home all the time, get in trouble for my wife. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, the, the, the side itself, I mean, you've been presenting for many years, going out to many places via video conferencing. Um, tell, tell us a bit about those, those programs. Yeah, so um, uh, the distance, what was once distance learning, right, and what was now uh, what I call interactive virtual learning um, is something that's so close to my heart. I've, that's pretty much been connected to my career since the very beginning. So I've been working in museums and really working with this connection um, to a, distance a distant audience uh, since 2009, which is wonderful. And, to have that, and I've had the opportunity to, you know, uh, work in an art museum context, a history museum context and now to find myself in the archaeological uh, collection and content is just wonderful and really really exciting because again like we talked about before it's just bringing all of these wonderful viewpoints together um, so the virtual aspect has been a great way to see not just middle school students that are in our area but also be able to help activate and extend this understanding of this very interdisciplinary topic um, to students just around the nation and it's really all an opportunity for kids to get hands-on, for them to kind of look in a different way or have an opportunity to kind of explore the way they might already kind of look at a subject or want to understand a subject and just have never had that vehicle before. And, you know, it's as fun as doing the field trips on site, right? We get to meet these classes and we get to have these really fun personalized moments. So we're talking about Minecraft or Roblox in these, in some moments. And then we're talking about what happened in Herculane Herculaneum the next and a wind shift and how that affected the ash in Pompeii and then in the other so it's a really fun day but I mean I think the most special uh, 
opportunity when it comes to the virtual learning aspect is that you get to have a constant connection or a, a second connection. Sometimes when you're on site and you're able to have these moments with these classes, it's wonderful, but you're, you only have them for a little bit. And I, I know you know how that feels because like, and like you said, even in the community, you're just like, oh my gosh, stay longer. We can talk about more. Um, and I mean, not that I don't want to do that on virtual as well, but when you know that you have an opportunity to um, have the content and the the different types of connection points and different viewpoints that the Penn Museum collection really offers, you know that you're going to be able, and you also are able to establish this wonderful relationship with the teachers and the students and the tech directors and all of the IT people involved as well. Um, you know, you know that the work's all worth it because you see the class again and then they remember the Penn Museum. And then, you know, that was just how I felt, you know, of course, prior to COVID. And on top of that, also making these connections and giving this enrichment to communities that just aren't able to have field trip opportunities. You know, like those are some opportunities that I know, I think you and I both have many times talked about, you know, that's what this is all about. That's what education is about. Being able to provide that enhancement that just might not be available due to budget, due to physical limitation, due to how, how remote you may be, right? So it's the passion that drives it. But what's been really cool is that, uh, or a silver lining, I guess, in reflection and things that you have to kind of hold on to in the particular time of human history that we find ourselves, is, is this idea that they're still connected, that you're hearing from these teachers, they're asking for anything that you have available, and we can suggest these cool Facebook opportunities that are happening, or our programs that are still running and never went anywhere and will never hopefully go anywhere. Um, and then also on top of that, these pre-recorded uh, pieces of content and different pieces of the website that have already been digitized and can be used in this different way. And you know, the, the one thing that I also feel really lucky about is that there is an opportunity for such collaboration within the Penn Museum. And they really open this door where departments are sharing these um, different techniques and these different ways of working and different, like we talked about before, different viewpoints. And that makes the programs better. And everybody's job there is just to study human history. And so right now in this moment, it's been so wonderful in this digital pivot that's kind of necessary um, to help people feel somewhat connected in this unconnected world. It's, you know, what can feel right now like an unconnected world. It's been really, really, really great to see everybody just kind of give what they can in, in whatever digital, with whatever is available to them, whatever technology is available to them. They give it and they use it as a tool to help provide content for people that really need it. And it's lucky for us too, because the stuff that's pre-recorded, we can help teachers use, you know, now and families use now, and then hopefully lots in the future as well, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And then there's the thing, it is a unifier too. I mean, there, I mean admittedly, there's some kids um, from an equity point of view, they've not been able to connect because they don't have the internet. And that's a thing that, you know, people have to surmount over time. But as a yeah. whole, uh, you know, we've been able to connect much more yeah. broadly to places. Um, the, I mean, I mean, a lot of places might only ever connected to their local site because they would drive out to the site and that's how they yeah. do their excursions. Now there is this whole massive world out there of just people that oh. connect with and it's only time zone that's a barrier in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
yeah, I, <laughs> I would agree. That's why I always, I'm always one for the, for content that's going to be available. And also, con, you know, I've also, I, some, I'm a traditional, I have so much of a traditionalist in me as well. So even when I, uh, you know, prior to the circumstances we all, you know, that, you know, that's affecting everyone globally, I was still someone that was, uh, you know, telling students, we're going to do a worksheet with a pencil and like you, I don't want you looking at other monitors, look up at one, let's all be together, right? We have, to, so um, I definitely think that's where these opportunities are for the website, right? To be these, you know, with the engagement that your website can give you or the materials that you can provide, um, you know, digitally that, that could be printed out or something that could be taken with them or in some ways, even if they're so remote, you know, hopefully you can get to them or make a connection where it can get to them. Because I work with, um, you know, I work with, I've been grateful enough to work, to work with a lot of groups in a lot of remote uh, situations. Um, and there's one group in, uh, specifically that's in a very remote part of Canada. And I just, you know, the connection I have with them and I feel for them and that we've been able to maintain past, um, you know, through all of this progression into whatever this new normal is, has been, you know, really a light for me outside of, you know, of course, my family and, the, you know, those that I love and, you know, those, the blessings that you, of course, hope, you know, you thank the world for every day. Um, but the, the idea of being able to have that connection is another like really great silver lining and, and, you know, just like a, uh, you know, an understanding of, you know, people do want to learn about really cool stuff and it's fun that science works into that. And like we said, history and art, <laughs> it's lots of cultural understanding too. Oh, that's cool. And one of the things that um, you've been heavily working, it's not just with the Penn Museum, but with multiple sites and actually on the research basis about what, you know, from an impact point of view, how people actually perceive what a IVL program, interactive virtual <laughs> learning program is. And that is yes. a whole rabbit, rabbit warren <laughs> to get into. I mean, you only did something recently about this. Yeah. Um, yes, I will say that I was lucky enough just to get the right internship and have the connection with this wonderful, wonderful mentor, Linda O'Leary. She is just like the most, I will credit so much to her because she really opened up this door um, as a learning opportunity. And, um, and I will say uh, the one consistency I did see from the time, like I shared before, it's in 2009, was this idea of how, um, you know, the digital identity for each institution, um, each cultural center, each science center, you know, art, zoo, botanical gardens, um, under that great umbrella, it's, you know, there was this small pocket of individuals that were providing these amazing uh, programs that were live broadcasts and they were educational and they had standards and they were fun and they were exactly what pe what's happening on site and bringing to life all of these cool topics. But like nobody knew how to define us. We called ourselves content providers and then all of our institutions may have called us something different. So, um, but, but what the research was really focused on at that time was the idea of digit uh, digitizing collections and how to use a website and, you know, from an educator's point of view, um, MOOCs and how that really fits into what you can do for engagement and digital engagement and resources. Um, so I found that, you know, in our monthly meetings, we would, you know, there was this gap, this uh, lack of nomenclature, this lack of uh, defined vocabulary that really, really helped us uh, carve out and, and um, explain 
our our work. So um, working with so many different people, I mean, uh, uh, I decided I wanted to try to do something about it. And I had the opportunity in getting my master's degree to really understand this connection to scholarship. So I've always kind of had this like, I've always been like a secret writer. And I've done like, an, I did an undergraduate thesis and I, in art history, and I wrote this, um, <laughs> this master's thesis on how video games is a bridge between uh, informal and formal uh, learning and had to fight for a blog post to be considered a <laughs> credible source. And then, um, and then I found myself in the world of distance learning and found that, you know, we got to speak up. What are we doing? But this idea of scholarship, we could, we could make a small change. We could do something that someone could use as a resource or offer to a department lead or a museum or a cultural institution leader and say, hey, here are some best practices, some ways that we can really talk about our content and our collection and our research in a digital format that's what we do in our tours or your, you know, your educational or public programming. Um, so I went and I decided to spend two years of my life on this journey of peer review or <laughs> scholarly journal. Um, I proposed a theme to just talk about what distance learning was in the context of it being interactive virtual learning programs um, and worked with these four author teams, this great group of women um, that wrote about the, the historical context the, uh, you know, the different audiences, K through 12, lifelong learners. So, and this other idea of a global and community outreach that this digital, these digital platforms can provide. Um, and we did it all just kind of to add to the scholarship that was already this asynchronous or this web-based user-directed digital resource. And uh, we said like, hey, here's this other example of interactive, you know, this interactive synchronous version of technology that can be used as a tool as well. And our whole goal was to really make it be um, something that that people could use. So we wrote it kind of like this skim. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, with that, um, uh, that media that it's like a newspaper thing I read and it's an app and it's also a podcast now. So I'm sorry, I didn't know how to exactly to, <laughs> to define it there. Um, but we basically just had big headlines and we would write quick modules with best practices as conclusions as a kind of like constant flow through these four articles um, that really talked about different practices that make uh, technology a tool, available technology a tool. And also, um, you know, that it's not, it has to be, it doesn't have to be it can fit your budget. It can be sustainable. And, you know, we had some really cool data that was collected from content providers that have been doing this for over 20 years. Um, we uh, started some data uh, with a whole group of lifelong learners, this whole adult community that was using um, the distance learning or the interactive virtual learning programs as enrichment. And then we also were able to kind of give some case studies on um, some practices, some that worked, some that need, you know, that were just some happenstance and it was really cool to see some collaboration and others that were trials and quick experiences to explain how you can use it. Just some really cool use cases. Um, so that was like a, a real big mission to help everybody really think about, you know, in this world that felt like digital resources are just flickering all around, you had some opportunity to really create a, a robust digital identity, not just one that, that fit one direction, that really could be something that hits both ends. 
but this was also published. This was two years of my life. Um, you know, a year working as editor of these four amazing teams. And then, you know, the first year getting reviewed by a whole group of wonderful people, the Museum Education Roundtable, that really, really helped uh, get everything into shape and focus it and make it a hopefully a valuable resource. Um, but outside of that, it was published in July 2019. So it's like, it was bizarrely close <laughs> to what we're doing now. Like what, what's now been, become a, a, a big interest to a lot of museums. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about the research. So I hope I haven't talked too long. Um, I'm really excited to talk about the research because it seems so relevant now, more relevant than my personal mission it started as, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, now three years ago. I'm, Totally with you. I um, mean, I was lucky enough to do uh, visit a lot of uh, museums and zoos and aquariums across North America on a Churchill Fellowship, gosh, back in 2014, uh, and you know, produced that research and got it out there into the world. However, uh, it was um, it, it was sort of you know, it, it was used by distance learning teams once it was shared out, and then it was sort of sort of left there for a while. And now all of a sudden it's really popular. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and um, so, I mean, I think just yesterday completed another training round through Inspiring Australia where we had over 200 organizations listening to myself and a few others uh, from Sydney Science Education, Refraction Media, and you know, guest people just, you know, just explaining what it is that we do and how we do it without the hyperbole, without the over polished, overproduced blah, just simply just here's how we do stuff. Um, yes. and, and just yes. do an A back and forth <laughs> and it worked a treat. And so we're, we're still doing it. It's currently May, 2020, and we've got a couple more rounds to go and it's been oh, a lot of fun yes. and just hearing just how many people really want to come to grits with this tech, uh, cause yes. you know, it's not just cause they got it cause they want to. And so yes. it's been, it's a lot of fun and we, we do, we sit in the weird intersection right now. <laughs> I must admit. I know. And isn't it so fun? I used to start certain like conversations either saying like, no, I'm not a YouTube video. It's not pre-recorded," or like showing a clip of the Jetsons where, um, you know, she puts her morning face on um, or like trying to show something that could have been a quick clip I saw in a different way. Uh, and I find it so funny that that's no longer needed. Right? <laughs> um, I will say, you know, the, the cool thing that, that I saw was how, nicely the Penn Museum did actually respond to really thinking about this digital identity. And we really have been, um, at least within my department and um, you know, the person that I work with, my leader, she really works hard um, or had, had really worked hard and let me kind of tech out and go crazy when all of this happened and sent her as many resources and pings that I possibly could to just help put as much information in her hands. But in this idea of really thinking about that identity of like what we do, Ben, you and I, where it is really this, this very unique um, or grow and now growing, what was unique, I should say, and now growing and wonderfully accessible form of teaching and learning and engagement and connection, um, you know, that it, that it has a different role than something else that we might do that has a very, very important educational role or engagement role. And then also something else we might do in um, a collection-based or a research-based role. So it's been really interesting and really exciting for me, especially as, you know, doing the research and stuff to see them put into to practice, like, you know, my webpage has the interactive virtual learning programs on the top of it. And it makes me feel so like my heart's so happy. I sent the 
I sent like screen grabs to Linda and Casey, the authors, like with all the heart emojis I could to express <laughs> how much I could, I wish I could reach through the phone. And also that they took the time to all, to explain, you know, the purpose of the digital resources, like we were talking about before, you know, those resources that can be available, even if it is maybe when you have to take that ride or you get the opportunity to have that ride to um, an area, um, a center, a, a family's home where you can at, like kind of access that type of enrichment. So that's been really cool. And, you know, um, you know, it's, it's exciting for, you know, for me and what I hope is you as well to like, you know, not only enhance this type of uh, technology, but also the collections that obviously we're really passionate about as well. Absolutely. And by the way, anyone listening in who is a distance educator, who is a tech coordinator, seriously, hats off. We know how hard yes. you have worked for your organization, for your schools, your districts, wherever it is that you do. Oh my goodness. We know you got slammed. We totally do it because we got slammed. Yes. <laughs> it's a thing. And um, it, you really have done an amazing job. And uh, I know that the impact extends well beyond a COVID thing because honestly, the number of people that now 100% get what it is that you've been doing for years and yeah. we will use it over and over and over again. And I think that uh, it's like the whole rubber band once stretched will not come back to the same form. Yeah. <laughs> I think education will be like that uh, for sure. And um, the thing yeah. is though, like, yeah, you do the digital role hundred percent, but then mm -hmm. again, you also involved in not just the uh, people visiting your museum, you're involved in you know, the local festival as well. What, what, what's, what's that all about? Oh, yes. So um, we have this amazing, amazing opportunity as part of uh, Penn Museum, as being part of the University of Pennsylvania every year. I'm sure uh, you said you were involved in some festivals, yes. so obviously science festivals. Are they annual or are they, how do they always look? Is there it's like an annual, annual one? Um, a lot of our ones tend to be sit around National Science Week, which sits around uh, middle of August. And by the way, National Science Week to people like us is National Science Month and a half because yes. <laughs> we can never actually get everything fit into that one week. Um, right. But yeah, that's a bit like that. It's a bit like that for, for your festival. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of this 10 day wonderful celebration of science that happens all over the city of Philadelphia. It's hosted by a local institution, um, the Franklin Institute, which is a, you know, obviously a wonderful and amazing draw in Philadelphia. So another great place. We're really lucky in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, where the Penn Museum is located that, uh, you know, the there are so many great cultural experiences. So the uh, this science festival, everybody from all different types of fields get together and just celebrate the science of their organization, their center, their school. And we have a whole great deal of opportunities to, uh, to kind of get involved with. So you can do family programming, you have opportunities to go to the national parks, there are food programs, there are things that happen after school, they, and they're dotted everywhere. So it's kind of like, we're Wherever your neighborhood is, you can find something having to do with science. They have these cool stickers. And um, I found that when I first got on the team, that was something that I kind of had to take control of. That was something that was, you know, part of my new role. And I was excited to kind of learn the collection or the research really in that way. Um, so I got to find these really cool, uh, you know, perspectives in <laughs> uh, to the collection through science. So um, I got to explore uh, conservation, one of the, you know, 
the most amazing teams. They're so outside of just being brilliant, they're so giving and they're so open and they're so willing to talk about their work and their expertise and show examples and give their time. Um, but what I, how I first found them, um, you know, as a science to celebrate in our Philadelphia Science Festival, as part of our Philadelphia Science Festival, um, was our in art, uh, our artifact lab, which is a, on the second floor of our museum. It's a live conservation um, lab where live conservation is occurring on typically uh, ancient Egyptian funerary objects, and in some cases even you know real life mummies and animal mummies. Um, and you also have kind of a gallery and experience of different objects that have been conserved. So you can see kind of the result of the work that you're actually seeing live. And these conservators are so wonderful. Um, you know, when we were open to the public and once we will be opened again, um, right in the future, whenever that may be, they actually opened the window two times. Um, uh, two times a day where they were actually kind of interacting with the public and asking questions and they could kind of ask any question about what they saw, whether that be about the tools, like the microscopes, and in some cases, uh, the different ways that objects are mended and put back together um, to really what they were working on and the content and the reason, right? Making sure that we're preserving history uh, through their work of science and it, history as we found it, right? Not adding anything to it, of course. So they had this really, um, cool uh, way of looking under the wrappings of, mu of mummies, because obviously nobody's unwrapping anything like that, animal or human, they use x-ray technology. So I thought that was like a cool way to celebrate a science at this big carnival that's like kind of the end where it's a big party. I made this matching game about that and kids just kind of come up with their families and they have to look really close and they have to kind of be able to uh, put together these matching cards to the x-rays of these five sets of different animal mummies that we have in our collection. And, um, you know, it's also really cool about that is that we've got to see not only families and visitors that didn't really know about us kind of interact in that way, but we also got to talk about conservation and the different roles scientists have on site in archaeology, the different types of, um, you know, kind of conservators and their specialties to specific parts of our collection. And that kind of just opened up this door of me um, being able to connect again to those labs down at the bottom of our at the bottom of the Penn Museum that explore uh, metal working. So I got to, I created this um, experience about ancient metalworking, and um, we have a, this whole series of like gold tattoos and uh, we talked to stu we were we would talk to families that would come up and they would get these tattoos during the festival hypoallergenic body paint comes off in a shower no worries but we talked all about that we had um, lots of uh, conversation about the science of henna at one carnival which was really fun and then um, we also had this amaz amazing conversation about how archaeology is truly a science so like bringing something that students can you know not students but families can't touch but we asked them like what's different from this and this and explain gridding and different experiences uh, again kind of bringing in that scientific method with this kind of aha moment um so that it's just like so 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 fun to be able to think of these quick moments and honestly some of those have even turned into some new virtual programs that we're offering now as well um, but yeah the the Philadelphia Science Festival is near and dear to my heart I think people at my institution would like know me to be carrying around uh, stickers at one point of the year at this point it would have been probably only two weeks ago actually Ben I would have been I would have been throwing I would have been telling everyone they had to wear their iHeart Science uh, stickers. I would have been wearing it everywhere, asking for volunteers. 
And I'm upset because I had to do this one, I really wanted to do this one program about how we move the Sphinx. Um, for the carnival this year, we, we did, did you know this, that we actually moved the oh, Sphinx? I saw this time-lapse video. And yeah. Everyone, imagine this. This is not a small Sphinx. This is like a no. truck. <laughs> no, it's the largest one. It's like li literally the largest one in the Western Hemisphere. It's the largest one. Um, so... Yes, there we this amazing team of great minds, ob, people that work with objects, of course, the conservators, exhibitors, and of course, the team of um, individuals that uh, you know engineered and constructed this amazing man-made bridge that moved this 14.5 ton uh, sphinx. 300 feet from the space it was rested over, you know, close to 100 years ago. Um, yeah, 300 feet through uh, through our mosaic courtyard into a doorway that could not have been fit better for this uh, colossal, amazing object of material culture. Um, but what was really cool was that they moved it on air tracks. And so on my exploration for Science Festival this year, which probably starts in about November, I kind of go and talk to people that did really cool science or experiments to see like how could we make that something that kids and families can engage with. And I thought about this idea of like, what about a race? Like who can move the Sphinx fast enough? And uh, the one of the individuals uh, that was a leader of the team, Bob Thurlow, he actually was uh, like kind of talked to me about it. And we were talking about it, the idea of an air hockey, kind of like an air hockey table. It would be like the same idea of, it, of the Sphinx kind of floating with the air track technology, <laughs> kind of. Like if you put a little Sphinx on top of a donut or of, of some sort, it could kind of smooth along like it did with these cool air tracks. I didn't get enough chance to like break it down, but because uh, all of this happened, so I had to shift my focus. But I'm no, going you back totally to do it. it. Actually, um, if you jump on yeah, tell uh, me. the physics <laughs> website, uh, there's a um, three ways to use a leaf blower. <laughs> yes. so you, can actually, you can actually use a marine ply, um, some industrial plastic, uh, plastic lid, a bolt. Um, actually, yeah, really do it because I've made a couple of them, and you, know, you you punch a few holes into into the into the plastic, and make sure that oh you, your leaf blower connects well and doesn't entangle people's hair. It's, you know, make sure it's all safe, and you totally oh can goodness. lift a person. You can so you can actually have races and move people across a stage or a space. That's, that's a lot of fun. And I've also seen um, balloon hovercrafts done with an upside down picnic plate uh, oh, with a hole yes. at the bottom, and you throw throw a balloon in there, blow it up. It doesn't last that long, like five seconds. <laughs> no, but, but still, I was like, but you know, those are the fun things that I feel like, um, you know, like you said, our days are kind of always so busy and like you love working with so many groups, but it's always kind of like you're moving. You're just constantly moving, which is great. Um, but being such like a researcher at heart and somebody that's also a kid that's like way, I have way too much energy. So I always want to play, you know, um, I would carve out these days to be able just to break it down. Like you said, I love the balloons. I also was just thinking when you said a leaf blower, I'm like, could I do it with a hairdryer? Like Ben, yeah, let's, do let's do a collab. We got to do something. <laughs> this would be so <laughs> fun. Um, but yeah, these are the things that, you know, um, that that are really, I, I think also the kind of special moments you get to be as someone that wears a lot of hats um, and also that gets to work with these really cool, this really amazing content. And I think even to bring it back to the research, that was another word outside of interactive virtual learning, 
um, and all of these specific terms that help you understand the audiences and connection points. You all, we also work to understand like what is a museum? Like how do we kind of get an umbrella? So calling it cultural centers and cultural organizations. And also like what is an idea of a collection? How do we make that as universal as possible to help people know that like they can do it? You know, like we got this. And that's the cool, you know, like so we would say things like content. Um, and it, it helps me with such an interdisciplinary collection like the Penn Museum offers. It's just such an exciting, you know, it's such an exciting way to apply the research to kind of uh, real, you know, like that realistic application. <laughs> it's really happening so we can use it. So Absolutely. No, I was just thinking, um, I mean, the, if you had, if you imagine you had a whole bunch of people in front of you who are starting their museum education career. That's what they're Oh doing. my goodness. They're, walk, they're walking into it and they're about to start. They're about to be let out into the world. Uh, what would be some sort of advice that you give to them in, in terms of stepping out, irrespective of which museum they end up in, entering in the first place? Oh my goodness, Ben, that is such a great question. I actually really appreciate that question because, you know, the one thing that I've always been extremely tied to is um, is the people that I learned from. Um, I really was lucky in high school to meet uh, you know, a mentor, this touchstone that really helped me understand, um, you know, what teachers and educators and the, you know, what turned into, you know, professionals um, really can mean to an individual. And uh, for me, I have been really lucky to, you know, trust in a lot of uh, mentors um, to help me find my path. And, you know, I am, you know, a little bit zany. So it's cool to have had people kind of believe in me and see, or at least stick with me to get to, to help to understand like how I could really apply myself. So, you know, the, the idea of education and continued education is really important to me. And I've always worked extremely hard and close with interns, um, high school interns, as well as undergraduate and graduate interns. And all of them kind of come along with me as a learning experience uh, with the science festival, a way of kind of introducing them to like what family programming is, what are really quick ways of getting people interested in such a, you know, a place they may never heard of. Once I find out more about them, being able to understand, like we talked about before, what's your lens? Like, do you want to research? Do you want to interact with the public? Do you want to do something that's more web-based? You know, because technology um, has always been in my in you know in my life, in my professional, in my scholastic life. Um, you know, and uh, usually all the interns would be like, you know, distance learning is cool, but like it wouldn't exactly like hit them right on like what they would want to be doing. Um, so um, being able to act as mentor and teacher is really cool for those students. So I would say, you know, if you're going into museum education, match your scholastic pursuits, what you're going to be asked to study and write and do as classwork, match that with your professional experience. Make sure that you intern and you do assistantships and you have, or whatever is those opportunities. You know, like for me, I volunteered. I would just keep going places until they would be like, Allison, don't you want to take a Sunday off? Like, I just think that you can, and you don't have to be like that, but you should really find a balance between, um, you know, matching the theory with the practice so that you not only have connections and ways of kind of finding part-time work maybe or full-time work or, you know, whatever opportunity or path you might go down after your studies, but you also have this opportunity to see different 
parts of the field um, and different ways and reasons people have to look at the field or the practice a little bit different. So I would say that would be um, a, a really big part. And the other thing I would say is, you know, I think scholarship is important. So I was really lucky. Um, my program I picked specifically because we could write a thesis that was then published. It was, you know, you had a copyright to the idea, but also it helped me kind of understand the reason I was learning what I was. Um, you know, like I got to write an instrument. I understood the importance of data. I understood, you know, how to talk about that data, not just um, to prove your point, but to understand the importance of the data that doesn't necessarily prove your point because it's helping you kind of see what you need more research in and applying again that scientific method in whatever, you know, what, uh, you know, that came about. So I would say, uh, you know, writing and if, if you don't, if you're not a writer, then definitely make sure you get that experience <laughs> along with all the cool stuff you'll be introduced to. That's absolutely right. And I mean, it doesn't matter which uh, stage of um, your career either too, because you can get involved in research quite early on, or you can do it, you know, 30 right. years down the track is up to you, but at least getting you know, connected uh, with what everyone else is doing. And then, yeah, exactly. Pulling the data and going, actually critically analyzing, does this thing work? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, that's what I always, um, you know, even when we were writing about the journal, there was some pushback about certain data points. And it was just because they, you know, in some cases you get into these conversations of like, is this a exactly what we want to say like you know this is but and I would have to you know especially in the role of editor and also the you know my my ultimate goal was to really help like I said earlier add to the scholarship you know this is because we're all cultural work you know like everybody anyone that's going to be reading it or is going to have an interest they're going to want to you know help hopefully help improve right and just you know bring knowledge into themselves and so to me like what I always said was it doesn't necessarily have to be our good data right it doesn't have to prove our point um, but it means we have to look at, we really have to look at that harder. So, um, but that's a hard thing to do as well, because you're just like, oh, you know, this meeting is almost over. Why do we have to talk about what we have to do? We have to write again. <laughs> <laughs> look, Alison, you've done an amazing job since 2009 doing this sort of work. And it's really, really cool. Not only, um, the work that you do in Penn Museum, but frankly, for the industry as a whole, this, this thing that is this teaching mechanism that is not just virtual learning, but all over the place, museum education, it's fantastic. Um, look, how would people be able to get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, thank you so much, Ben. And it's always so great because I always learn, like not like I, I literally was taking notes with my pen and my paper here while we were talking. Um, so I always learn from you and it's always fun. You know, that's really, really nice because that's really the goal, right? Is to share and, and not just about our specific little small point that's now really kind of big part of, uh, you know, that type of education, that style of using technology as a tool, but also the field of museum education. So I really appreciate that. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, um, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can do that. And then also you can, um, you can connect with me on my, uh, at my email address, I guess. Should I give that to you now or should I say it online or should I be, should I give to it to totally you? Totally up to you. We can put it in the show notes, of course. Okay, cool. So it's just mallison, uh, consult at gmail.com. So you can go ahead and just email me that and then we'll put it in uh, the notes because my name is spelled with two L's and a Y, and that's not always the typical way. My mom wanted to make sure I never got a keychain in the summer, so. Oh, yeah. that'll be that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get that. Uh, and, and hello to everyone out there with um, uh, unique names. I actually, uh, sim <laughs> I have family members in a similar situation. <laughs> uh, it's called right. Alison. 
thank you very much for joining me. I know it's been a busy time for you and to take this time out, you know, just for a little while just to reflect on what you've been doing has been fantastic. And seriously, if you're listening and wondering, how will you start teaching archaeology? How will you start talking about conservation? Maybe just reach out to Alison. She 100% will be able to help you out in amongst everything else she's trying to help out with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'll also give you links to the Penn Museum and the Amazing and the Artifact Lab blog as well. So I'm, I, I will give you all the links if you'd like so that you can put them in the notes. Really exciting stuff. No, Thanks totally. so much, Ben. Have a great one. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Physics Ed Podcast. Sign up now for our fortnightly email newsletter. It's loaded with details on new experiments you can do, STEM teaching articles, new gadgets, exclusive offers, and upcoming events. Go to physicseducation.com.au. Scroll to the bottom and add your email. Well, there we go. We just heard from Alison Mitchell, who you can really tell loves her virtual learning and more importantly, loves connecting to people all over the globe to teach about archaeology and science and culture and history all in one go. And the learners have a blast. So this is the thing you can reach out to Alison. You totally can. Jump on their website. Jump on pen.museum, so pen.museum. Check out their collections that they've got on site, but also reach out to Alison through the education programs and find out how you can connect your learners to there. And by the way, this is really a call to action to think about how you can be connecting well, your learners to, frankly, archaeology and you know, weaving that culture, weaving that history and the science together. It produces a deeper narrative. It really, really, really does. Hey, this was episode 100. So if you haven't checked out all the other episodes, go check it out. There are organizations right around the planet who are doing really cool science and STEM stuff. And a lot of them are doing virtual learning programs too, especially given what's happened during 2020. But some of them have been doing it for years. And Alison definitely is one of those people who has been helping a lot of organizations right around North America and beyond to really, really, really engage audiences in, in remote learning. So uh, definitely awesome job. Thumbs up. Excellent. Love your work. Hey, uh, that's the end of this episode. I hope you have a fantastic afternoon, evening, morning, <laughs> whatever you are doing, and I will catch you another time. You've been listening to another Physics Ed podcast. We're excited about science. Subscribe to us on iTunes to download the next episode as soon as it's released. And don't forget, for hundreds of ideas, free experiments, our new Be Amazing book, and more go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. aeon.net.au